Okay, Tom. Okay, Franz. So I want you to describe Helvetica by finishing this sentence. Helvetica feels like air. <laughs> nice. Because it's all around us. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> I cannot beat that. I would say something like basic. 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 Some like, people have already dropped off the podcast, Franz. Yeah. You just <laughs> you you you've, you've slamming it already. I I'm, yeah. I must say the um not original content from me there. Uh, I was not the person who came up with Helvetica's like air. Yeah, we'll get into that, but I think it's a really good way of describing it. Ah, uh, okay, that's why I wasn't can original it. content. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was. <laughs> so obviously, today's podcast is about Helvetica. And to all the new listeners, welcome to the DMBA podcast. And what we try to do here is share business content with the design community. And this is a something we call business design teardown. We take a darling of a design community, a product, a service, a font, and uh, we try to look at it from the business perspective. You know, is it just a fancy design or is it fancy business as well? And obviously, we're tearing down Helvetica today. And also the company that owns the rights to Helvetica which is Monotype Imaging, Inc. <laughs> it's a long name. But before we jump in, we have a maybe a small but big for us announcement. Uh, so Tom Franz and I were chatting that um, we should start a Slack for all the listeners of the podcast because sometimes it feels like we're just talking into a void, like it's just the three, uh, three of us talking. It's just kind of a one-way communication among the three of us and the listeners. And... Um, so we want to open up, open it up for you. So if you enjoy the show and would like to discuss the episodes, uh, join us on. So you can actually find the link to the Slack workspace if you head over to d.mba/slack. So d.mba/slack, you can join us there, and it's literally just two channels. One is called intros, and the second one is called uh, discuss episodes. And that's literally what we're gonna do: discuss yeah. episodes and the topic. We'd True. love to see you over there. And people actually increasingly write to us with comments. And that was maybe also a reason why we thought we would do this, right? So at the moment, it feels like people write us, we reply, but we thought it would be much cooler if other people would also see what other people write and then we could actually have a discussion. So looking forward to that. Very much looking forward. Alrighty, let's jump into the air. The air. Yes, let's do it. So you've already mentioned today we are tearing down Helvetica, um, a bit like the uh, Eames Chair episode. It's kind of an interesting hook to discuss a larger organization that that kind of owns that product, um, which is Monotype. Um, But yeah, Helvetica really, a bit like the Eames Chair for for Herman Miller is kind of like the heavy hitter, the one everyone's heard of. not just because it's owned by Monotype. I think probably people don't really understand the ownership piece so much. Mm. They just know Helvetica is the font. Um, So we've chosen it today. It's kind of a design classic. Um, It's interesting to frame a font in this way. I think a lot of people don't think of fonts as products. I think some people don't even realize that you have to pay for fonts, right? You get your laptop, Mm -hmm. 
it's preloaded with a whole bunch of fonts on there. You have to pay for these things. It's yeah, like, you download your Microsoft Office package, and then exactly. you have Arial. And then you have Arial. <laughs> yes, Comic Sans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah, Comic Sans. <laughs> Why are like, we talking about Comic Sans? Actually, we should have done an episode about yeah. Comic Sans. Uh, um, four <laughs> minutes into the episode, and we talk about the font missed the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Helvetica is for today. Today, Helvetica, maybe another episode, Comic Sans. So, <laughs> just a quick question. So, usually yeah. we have these like huge design, like brands that designers generally know. Like, it's one of the first things you learn probably in design school, like fonts and Helvetica is probably among the top. But I just want to ask Franz, like, Franz, do you remember when you first realized Helvetica is a thing? Like, like you basically kind of became aware of it? That Helvetica is a thing. Yeah, being a non-traditional designer, I mean. Mm. What do you mean with a thing? From I mean, well, maybe I'll tell you. Like, I wasn't really aware of any fonts. Maybe Times New Roman and a few others before I joined an agency, and that's where people I like, talked about fonts, and they were like hmm. affectionately now talking I about see fonts, what you mean. and they're like, "Oh, okay, Helvetica is a thing." So it's it's important. Actually, I didn't really realize that Helvetica is a thing until even now. But what I realized that fonts are a thing when I first met designers. So for me, fonts were like, okay, this is how I choose that my words should look like in a digital or printed out PowerPoint. Uh, thing. <laughs> PowerPoints. <laughs> um, I also knew that I could make things mean a special way by using a font. So I understood that by just trial and error and having and doing this but then i met desi a designer i actually still i haven't met him in a while i should write him so actually <laughs> this person his hobby was to design fonts and i was initially irritated but then it was the moment when i realized that fonts are a huge thing and people do this as a hobby to design fonts. And I was actually very much impressed by this um, because yeah, they are true. So with this um, realization of, yeah, you can use different fonts to have a brand image to not even have a brand image, but have basically an image for your slide, like put something in people's heads just by using a different font. So that was interesting. And then I, it clicked and made me realize that fonts are powerful and for some people a hobby. They're probably one of the most powerful elements of any graphic or visual design, communication design. Um, I think if you, sp I'm, I'm a designer with a background more in like visual design and slowly moved more into UX and products, product design, business design uh, increasingly. Um, but people slave over their typography choice. Like it's such a big element when it comes particularly to brand and identity. Um, and you know that's that's a, a controversial uh, part of Helvetica is that it became and still remains for a lot of people like the default choice. It just works so well that some people feel like it removes some of the creativity and imagination, um, and that typeface can communicate mood and personality. And there's there's big debate around whether type should do that, uh, and Helvetica doesn't generally. <laughs> basic because because it's basic i mean basic but in a in a beautiful uh very very hard to um 
comprehend way the effort that goes into making yeah. something that works so simply so um, for me basic actually was a compliment i sure. use basic as a positive word yeah yeah <laughs> so you mean uh, like ubiquitous like like just a, it's not basic but like it's just simple ah simple okay it's and it strips to the basics no distractions totally i think that's 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 the strength that it plays to um definitely say this at the beginning of a lot of episodes if you're not familiar with helvetica quick pause quick google quick image search you will you will recognize it i guarantee you and you'll probably realize that it is really all around um and an enormous amount of brands that you take for granted that you see every day probably use it for their logo which is wild the amount of organizations that do and i'm going to talk about some of those in a bit um not going to make this history lesson we're going to give you a quick rundown of kind of how helvetica came to be there are some fantastic books podcasts videos documentaries. documentaries dedicated to that i'll let i'll let someone cleverer than me who's a real nerd kind of give you give you that element of it um but this typeface has been around a long time um so officially launched in 1957 that's like over 65 years of like popularity um and just being like kind of no-brainer choice um it was originally developed by a font foundry that's the name of well the the old traditional name for somewhere that would cast typography because you literally used to make it out of metal um if if you really want to geek out look into like how old font typesetting worked you know rows of metal letters and words being put together it is insane you think about how long it must have done taken to typeset a book and you just think my god i'm glad to start designing <laughs> in the age of figma um it's wild um so yeah they were a foundry that was developing um, their own system for typesetting but they also designed fonts um and they wanted to create a new sans serif, which means a font that doesn't have the little kind of feet uh, and little hats on the top and bottom, like something like Times New Roman, um, makes it look even more basic in, to use Franz's uh, terminology. Um, but they wanted to design a new sans serif type family that was more neutral uh, and kind of cleaner and clearer and maybe more basic than anything that had gone before uh, to kind of be like almost like like let's design the ultimate sans serif and mm. mission accomplished i would yeah. say in a lot of people's um opinion so that kind of kicked off 1955 um max uh, meidinger is kind of credited with being the main designer but there was a chap who worked at um has called edward hoffman who was probably more involved he was more of a kind of i guess manager um kind of i think board member he was way more heavily involved in the design process than people maybe previously gave credit for so i'd say you know pretty much hand in hand really interesting combination of a designer and maybe someone with more of a, a business head um was he the guy who apparently had a really good eye for yeah. type but wasn't yeah. really a designer so he mm. gave like a really good feedback but didn't know how to actually the perfect design <laughs> Totally, yeah, knew, and you know, didn't wasn't that one of those dangerous people who just knew, knew just a little bit to be dangerous, but actually, you know, had a really good sensitivity for design mm. and typography. So, it sounds like they were a bit of a dream team. Um, and yeah, eventually released in 1957, and 
you know, Helvetica is held up for its, you know, just some some of the elements of it is like it's clean lines, very straightforward, no unnecessarily embellishments, um, very neutral, emotionally neutral, meaning it doesn't convey mood, which to some people, particularly like in the late 90s, there was this real fashion for like grunge style typography um, that kind of people moved away deliberately from from modernist fonts, uh, modernist design in general into more postmodern place where they wanted to break the rules. Helvetica was very kind of rule-based and geometrically um, very balanced. Um, it has a kind of generosity to its spacing as well that makes it very easy to use at all different sizes. So just a few of the reasons why it's it's um, it's kind of beautifully cohesive, but I'm probably butchering it uh, for people who are real type nerds. And I would say, you know, if, if we've piqued your interest, go and have a have another look at uh, the things that make it technically very interesting. But it's not perfect. It has been kind of polished up over the years when it was first moved from being used uh in the six, you know in the 50s 60s with like metal type setting through to like photographic type setting and then eventually into digital it didn't translate perfectly so that was one of the downsides so over the years there's been like re-releases of it so the one that most of us probably have used more is um like new helvetica helvetica Neue, um which is the one that comes installed on a lot of machines. Which Can you pronounce that front for us? Helvetica <laughs> <laughs> Neue. 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 Tom wasn't off. I wasn't was too good. far off, which makes a change because my pronunciation <laughs> is usually pretty, pretty tragic. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think the thing is with Helvetica, it's hard to make a design look bad. <laughs> it's like, it's such an easy choice. It's low risk. And for some people, that's great because it allows you to concentrate on other things. It communicates really well. But for some people, it just feels like such a dull decision to make oh, Helvetica mm. again. But if you are not a designer and you want need to design a banging leaflet or poster or business card, you can't go wrong with like Helvetica Bold, tighten up the lending a little bit, bit of white space. Like you, you can't go too far wrong. And I think that is the beauty of Helvetica. Have either of you kind of done a little bit of like your own design stuff before and played around with with choosing a font and got lost <laughs> i'm sure i've done this but i don't remember like being conscious of helvetica at that time i just know like being in microsoft powerpoint <laughs> and so, trying to make it look story. okay fun sorry i was involved in organizing a good hand of events and i always or not always but in many cases took on the challenge of designing the flyer right <laughs> did you yeah wow I, was, I loved it but i think i was very bad at it <laughs> <laughs> and one key decision was always to choose the font and when i look at some of these flyers now i'm like you need to bring those along to the next podcast. I want to see these. Drop them in the Slack. So Design if, if people want to have a reason to sign up, um, Francis can drop nice. some Ooh. of his old designs designs into this episode one, and we can okay. we can rate we can rate them and see. That, that's going to hurt, but I'm <laughs> I'm doing this for everybody here. Okay. <laughs> you actually have those files still? I I don't have the files. Maybe I have screenshots. Perfect. I mean, the files would even be more ridiculous. I would pay for to see that. So you can actually see it for free if you join us on Slack. 
Are they okay. all hosted around Salzburg in Vienna? Are they for club nights or something? And, no, you know? <laughs> even the events don't exist anymore. I, I desi designed a logo for my football club, so ah, soccer club. Right. And I designed a flyer for <laughs> the main event for this uh, football club. So we needed to earn money, right? So, so every like, Low class football club in Austria has like two, three events per year. And yeah. I designed the flyer for that back uh, then. Uh, well, got those to look forward to uh, in the Slack channel. Um, <laughs> talking, of, talking of nationalities, I haven't mentioned that this is a Swiss designed font. So Haas was a Swiss foundry. It's famously kind of, um, kind of exemplifies the Swiss movement in design, which again, if you want to kind of dive deeper into what that means, um, we touched on modernism in the Eames chair episode. The Helvetica is in that same mold, kind of almost sort of utilitarian, practical, democratic, clean, very systems-based. Um, and for a lot of people, there's real beauty in that, including myself. Not one of these people who's like Team Helvetica or not. I think it has its place and it's extremely powerful. Um, and you can't, I don't think, argue with some of the sentimentality that, that comes with it. Um, mm. I said at the beginning, Alan, you asked, sum it up in one word, and I said air. Um, and that's a quote from the film Helvetica, which I will ask you about in a moment. Um, that's how I came up with the question, by the way. Because ah, I love that quote so much, though. I was actually going to say air. Were you? Since you said yeah. it, I was like, okay. Got it, got it, yeah. Game um, over. Because <laughs> this, this, this typeface is everywhere. Um, so just some of the organizations that have used it either for their logo, their identity, or both. Um, Apple used Helvetica Neu for decades until they replaced it with their own custom font, which we'll, I will touch on in a moment. So every Apple machine preloaded with Helvetica, you know, that, that's pretty big distribution uh, opportunity right there. Um, Microsoft did use Helvetica for a while. Um, well, an, a Helvetica clone called Ariel, which we'll all be familiar with, not as good as Helvetica. Um, BMW used it on their corporate com communications, Lufthansa, the airline, American airline famously, the New York City subway um, for all the signage, the North Face, um, CNN, the US government. If you fill out your federal tax forms, Helvetica. NASA, Helvetica. Like, it's just everywhere. I could go on. Um, most importantly, as a Swiss as a Swiss designed thing, the Swiss football team's kits, um, as of a few years ago, using Helvetica. Mm. Um, so, yeah, can you think of any that I've missed? The, yeah, the, you missed the, the big one. Like a really I big one. I do grand. know the big one. Yeah. DMVA. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Congrats. Yes. Uh, I also, uh, I was Googling for Helvetica and there is, I think, a Swiss uh, airline company called Helvetica. Right. And unfortunately, Insurance. it doesn't use... Hel no, there was something called Helvetica. It was an airline and uh, it didn't use Helvetica. And that's what felt just wrong. That's not right. Like, yeah. Well, <laughs> the company called. Oh, okay, now I get it. That's, yeah, yeah, the company. That's a miss, isn't it? Because talking of names, so the the typeface is called Helvetica. It was originally called um, Neue Haas Grotesque. Franz, help me out, man. How should it be pronounced? Neue Haas Grotesque. Whenever I say it, just imagine what Franz just said. But put that in your head. The last word is a really hard one to pronounce for non-natives. Yeah, so I give you that. Me. Thanks, man. <laughs> um, so just for you to know, like, 
uh, the only way that we're gonna do an episode is if it has uh, some like German names yes. uh, to be a new to be pronounced <laughs> as a, like part of the story. So that was the original name, and a grotesque is a kind of type of typeface. Um, you have like humanist typefaces and all sorts of categories, and this was this was in the grotesque category, um, which. I don't know what it trans like what the direct translation would be like the word grotesque in English is not a positive association. No. So, what does grotesque mean, um, or does it mean anything in like? It's. I think it has the same. It's kind of a word that is being used also in other languages like English because it's so hard to translate. So, grotesque is something that is weird in a way. In a weird, in a special way. So I can't even translate it. I think there is no direct English word to translate it. Right. But it's like something that's weird in an alarming or offsetting way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can see I would why never there was a like. Sorry, go ahead, Tom. No, go on, Am. <laughs> I was just going to say that I, I don't understand why someone would use a word grotesque for Helvetica. It just doesn't seem like a good fit. Maybe the time, like, it was grotesque because wow. it was so clean or like. This is legible. why my confusion around why it's why why I thought there must be a difference in in translation here because the word grotesque or those were the description that Franz put out there matches mine. But um, I understand when people describe a grotesque font that kind of kind of font what that means, um, but it doesn't kind of make sense to me as a comparison, and certainly it doesn't sound appealing to an English speaking market, which is why. Mm -hmm. It's now called Helvetica. So they realized they, they, they had big ambitions for this typeface. They wanted to sell it into the, particularly in the North American English-speaking markets. So that name, difficult to pronounce, the word grotesque in there is not doing itself any favors from a marketing perspective. So the original thought was, let's call it Helvetia, which I think is the Latin for Switzerland. Yeah. Um, they were like, we we can't we can't go with that. It can't have one country as as the name. There's also an awful lot of Swiss typefaces out there. That would that would just be not quite right. So they decided to adapt it to Helvetica, which my understanding is that that sort of roughly translates as the Swiss um, or yeah, something like adjective. close to that. Um, much more easy to pronounce, and obviously now just like just rolls off the tongue when you're thinking about typefaces, the, the biggies. Certainly a lot more memorable, easy to market than Neuhaus Grotesque. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Four out of ten pronunciation that time? No, that was seven even. Seven. Cheers, yeah. man. Um, so little uh, challenge for you. In your rooms right at now, at the moment, we talked about how Helvetica is like air. I'm going to give you 20 seconds. For the people on YouTube, this is probably going to be more entertaining. Can you find anything, anything around you that might have Helvetica on it? Certificates are certificates for sure. Certificates, what has Franz got? Business card. Business card. Franz, can you actually, like, if you if you see Helvetica, do you, like, recognize, you recognize it right it? away? Yeah. I have troubles with, like, recognizing, is this Helvetica or is it, like, some... It's, something similar. There are so many clones now, which we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. touch on. But friends, I think yeah. I'm I'm not definitely not one hundred percent, but it's like Helvetica or something that wants to be or is a free version of 
I'd let it go. <laughs> I think your eye will be in now. You'll be going around Vienna, um, Salzburg, sorry, just spotting it everywhere now. It's it's the designer's curse, not just like recognising fonts, but also when you realise what's wrong with typography out and about. Mm. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't get too much into typography because your life will not be the same uh, afterwards. But uh, yeah, I I quickly looked on my bookshelf. I'm holding up a copy of Good Services by Lou Down, which I think I think is Helvetica. I'd be amazed if it isn't. It's like beautifully typeset and kind of shows you a good example of like when Helvetica is used very very simply, um, mm. just how powerful it is. Um, so yeah, it didn't take me long to find. To find one example of it, um, and it, interestingly, a New York Times journalist—I think it was like a few few years ago now—he tried to he, over a period of I think it was several weeks. He tried to go one day in New York without encountering Helvetica, and he could not do it. It's like subway billboards, brands, um, online—it's like impossible. And that's why yeah. that like like air thing uh, comes from. It is everywhere, for better or worse. So, yes, designers and Helvetica. Um, some love it, some hate it. I've got a, what I think are a few reasons why designers love and hate it, which I'm going to uh, dive into. Feel free to jump in if you've got any thoughts on these. So we've already talked about the simplicity. Like it's clean, minimalistic, easy, like pretty, pretty easy to read uh, and very adaptable. Um, and that lack of embellishment allows you to use it in context where you can kind of really make other elements pop out. Um, that's one of the reasons I love using it personally um, is you know you've got a banging font. You're not going to have to do too much typographically and everything else can can kind of um, be more focused on. Um, but then conversely, lack of personality. A lot of people are like it's so neutral um, that people see it as a drawback. It doesn't communicate that mood or that personality. Um, either of you is like I would say – both coming from non-traditional design backgrounds. Do you ever think about that? Like when you're reading something, are you do you think about the personality of the typeface that's in front of you? Does it does it help speak to you in any way, or do you just always take them for granted? I don't think about it, but I think it has an effect on me, especially if it is really old school. I mean, yeah, there are certain typographies that do also speak about the age of what you're reading. Um, I think books generally have like a certain typography so yeah it does have an effect but i don't like think about it because you know it's just not the thing i paid too much attention to so, yeah hmm. france mm. have you ever really, not really about thinking it? about it no but i for me lack of personality i think i wouldn't go with this because it's all this simplicity and neutrality is also personality so i think it's this font also only fits to brands that wanna go with simplicity and wanna go with um I don't know, maybe if you are teaching something, you wanna be in the Helvetica edge. Maybe if you are ASAP, mm. uh, maybe you wanna have your clean and neutral uh brand. Um so yeah, I so I wouldn't say it hasn't doesn't have personality, I would say it has neutral and simpler personality which is good for some brands and not so good for others totally yeah you mentioned Aesop they use it for their like um, all of their body copy uh, is set in Helvetica and it's just it works so well for them um, 
but that that kind of neutrality is one of the hallmarks of um, sort of modernism that a lot of designers pushed back from and still push back from. Um, there was this emphasis on sort of rationality, on order, uh, that some people think borders on the sort of sterile and impersonal. So it's not just from a sort of typical like visual thing. A lot of people from a kind of um, cultural perspective like really don't like what it represents um, and a lot of people prefer the kind of postmodern one in a breakout of all that stuff so I think there can be um, a deeper resentment for it um, in some circles um, as well but it's timeless one of the positives is a lot of people are like it's absolutely timeless like the Eames chair um, it's been going since the 50s and that means if you are a brand you can invest in it for long term, right? Like do something in Helvetica, you you might never have to update it. You know, look at American Airlines. That's looked like it looks for decades now. And the designer um, who features in the Helvetica documentary is like, you've got the best. Like, why would you ever adapt it? Other airlines have. Um but then conversely, you know, design moves in cycles and Helvetica has been through several phases of trendiness. I remember when I was first like designing professionally after graduating university in like the mid 2000s, like 2004, 2005, it was on another wave. Um, I was using it a lot. I guess I was reasonably new to design, like starting to understand the power of like a very good typeface and probably over overused it. Um, but over the last few years, there has been this sort of trend back towards brands throwing away their kind of more ornate logos uh, and identities and really focusing on having a simple sans serif which i have to say has made for like real homogenization that again now brands are pushing away from you see a yeah. lot of high-end clothing brands that all looked the same a couple of years ago all now starting to go back to something a little more um individual having a little more character so these things go in waves I think for branding, it is like, like if you use Helvetica as your logo, um, so like let's say that your company company's logo is the name of the company and just written in Helvetica, like the North Face, then I think you could be in a position where if other companies and other companies do use it in the same way, then it could like, you know, put you in the same kind of sameness, sea of sameness there. Mm that you want to break out of. But there's so many other use cases for typography, apart from just the logo, like, you know, just legibility in documents, legibility, I don't know, in teaching uh, and so on, that just, I think it's one of those fonts that has so many different use cases that even if it's not used in branding as such, so I mean like top level logo and, and these kind of things, it still has its own place. Mm. Yeah, wide variety of uses, and you've not you've mentioned the next thing that I think a lot of designs gravitate to it for, which is that readability. Like it was designed to be something that um, would work well in all sizes, big and small. But that that size thing has changed over over time. Like in the fifties and sixties, having something set at like twelve point was considered quite small. But now we're typesetting on you know. Apple Watch and things like that. And actually, Helvetica doesn't hold up so well. Um, mm. It's not considered the most readable or accessible typeface anymore. So, yeah, originally, you know, it was probably one of the more readable typefaces out there. But now, 
not so much. And it's one of the reasons that Apple moved away from using Helvetica um, and created their own font, which is San Francisco, was particularly because of um, the Apple Watch. Which but is it's very similar easier. to Helvetica, right? Very, very similar. So it's just like adjusted Helvetica. Absolutely. Um, and that's a lot of brands have done that, right, Alan? Um, and that that's another reason why designers don't like Helvetica a lot of the time is the cost. <laughs> like licensing Helvetica is really expensive. And we will get into that a little later when we talk about the business model of um, fonts and typefaces and how that all works. Um so yes, some brands moved away from using it because of readability issues, but a lot have moved away from it because of cost issues. Um, rumors are that IBM, who uh, used it for decades, pretty much from their inception, were paying something in excess of a million dollars a year on licenses um, for all their employees. And that's that's a lot of dollar. So what we've seen, when you talked about the, oh, I think I see something that's Helvetica, it's almost certainly a, a typeface that, tries to emulate it, but has been designed by that organization so they don't have to have enormous licensing fees. So Google moved away and used uh, designed its own typeface called Roboto. Apple now have San Francisco. Netflix and Airbnb have created their own Helvetica-esque fonts. So there's a sort of uncanny valley of fonts that aren't quite um, Helvetica, but are, and they're, and they're much cheaper. If you own a typeface, it's not going to cost you a million quid to design a typeface. Um, so it makes business sense to um, to develop your own. But like, that's the thing I don't get is how much do I need to change Helvetica for it to not be Helvetica anymore? Because when I look at these changes, they're so minor mm. that if this would be in any other industry, if this would be music, I would say this is plagiarism. But in font in typography it doesn't seem to be that way like you know what like i actually don't know what the tolerances are like there are obviously from a copyright perspective they're like original drawings and they, they'll go to the archives and you can see each each um goliath kind of drawn out and this is legally what what we copyright and license for i'm really not sure how much actually you need to mm. adjust from that Maybe when you guys move on, maybe I'll do a quick, quick bit of searching and seeing what that is about. But you're right. And I think it was, I might have been IBM that when they launched their own font, or is it, I know it might have been CNN actually. No, it was CNN. They launched their own Helvetica alternative um, to save money. And their internal like marketing decks and everything was very explicit of like, it's like Helvetica, not quite. And they were like comparing. Uh, sentences and words next to each other and showing just how close it was. It's like, yeah, that's a fine line from a copyright and tr yeah. you know, perspective. I think that a font to be used, you need more than a font. And that's where the changes come in. Like if you license Helvetica from um, Monotype, you're not only getting the font, but you're getting... Um, software that makes it possible to use this font on your screen, on your devices. Mm. And if you have your own font, you also need to have your own backend in order to make this possible, basically digital typesetting. Um, so I think that's, <laughs> it doesn't really like hit the copyright thing because it can still be very similar, but I guess there is, that's the reason why it's a whole different product. It's not only, so I think the font is, yeah, more than just the font and the types, but also the way of it being used in, um, yeah, 
on screen on your devices. Mm. I think we'll probably dive into how that kind of licensing model works uh, in a bit. So, yeah, some of the reasons why people love and hate um, Helvetica, and there's quite a, um, it can be a little tribal sometimes. I think less so now, definitely 10, 15 years ago, around the time that the film came out, it kind of stirred up a lot more discourse about the use of Helvetica and some of the cultural associations with it. A lot of people see it as they associate it with like corporate culture and government uh, and bureaucracy. And that, like a lot of people really push back on that. And I do understand that. Um, but yeah, it hasn't really been in the conversation for, for a little while. Uh, and I'm sure it'll come back around uh, again. If you want to really nerd out on Helvetica and more broadly, I think communication design and graphic design in general, the documentary film Helvetica that came out in 2007 is an absolute must watch. Um, it's hard to like say, yeah, you should definitely go and watch a film about a typeface. Uh, it's going to be really good, but it's very well, <laughs> right, done. So. Very well done um, by a director called Gary Huntwit, uh, Huswit, um, who's done a sort of design trilogy that are all really good. Um, have either of you watched the documentary? Did you enjoy it? Franz, you haven't seen and it. Um, Alan? I did watch it. Yeah. What did you think? Mm. It was interesting just to... For me, being like a novice in this world from like design perspective, it was just interesting to hear how something just evolved over time that Helvetica was a reaction to. I remember a particular like scene from the documentary where they showed the 1950s like magazines mm. and how every brand used different really, I would call those fonts grotesque, like really <laughs> grotesque fonts. Like it was just overly stylized. And um, I think uh, uh, yeah, one of the guests in the documentary, I think Beirut was talking about the fact that, you know, like this is simple. Helvetica was just like cutting through the noise. It lets you just focus on the message. And it kind of explained to me where it's coming from because today it's so ubiquitous that you kind of don't even see the how special it is or how special it was. And then I joined also hearing how, why certain designers love it and why certain hate it. And I love that. It wasn't just like one-sided documentary, mm -hmm. but it was like from both sides showing the the story. And, um, but it's just, I mean, as soon as you have a documentary about a certain type of product, you know, it's a hit. Mm -hmm. And you know that if it survived for 50 years, it's as likely to survive for another 50 for certain reasons. Um, so yeah, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I, not I, the quality of the video, I have to say, but uh, the, the yeah, storyline was good. That. Like, I probably haven't watched it for like eight years or so, and put it on. I've got it on DVD, um, so I had to root out a DVD player to watch it as part of research for this. Um, and yeah, there's something about the quality that doesn't quite hang up. I'm sure there's a 4K version out there if you really want to <laughs> go deep on it. But you're right. I think the thing I enjoyed is it's not really just about Helvetica. Um, it's, it's about graphic design in general, but it does give a very balanced view. It could just be this gushing um, sort of fluff piece about Helvetica, but it isn't. And I think that's that, that says a lot about the, the filmmaking. Um, mm. So yeah, big recommend. Funnily enough, it um, I don't know what I was thinking at the time, but when I first started um, seeing uh, 
see my girlfriend with who I'm still with now. So probably like eight or nine years ago, she she'd show like you know how it is. You're kind of starting to understand what each other's interests are and stuff. And she made me watch some film that I pretended I was really really into. And I was like, oh, I know what's going to make me look really clever and uh, interesting. I'll make her watch uh, Helvetica. Uh, <laughs> It's a she, move, she, she was asleep within 20 minutes um, <laughs> and the next day she said um, I learned subsequently like a couple of days later that she texted her friends saying he made me watch a film about a font <laughs> um, don't don't know how the relationship managed to survive survive that but um, yeah we are still together and I put it on last <laughs> night and I was like um, oh maybe maybe you'll enjoy it more this time round because she's actually a, she's a <laughs> content designer now and she was like ah, i think i'll just go on my phone <laughs> <laughs> and did not make it to to the end so um yeah i have to say i i, I managed to not call her out on texting her friend saying um he made me watch a film about a font because the type nerds out there will definitely be in our comments if we keep referring to it as a font because Helvetica is a typeface a font is like a very specific weight size of a version of it so um don't come at us type nerds if we use font and typeface interchangeably you know what we mean um <laughs> so yeah and funny enough final bow tying on on the film i was watching it last night and they mentioned about oh yeah, it's like air it's everywhere and i was just sitting on my sofa and i was looking around just thinking hmm wonder if there's some Helvetica around here. Literally, a poster that I have up next to my television um, is for a like art exhibition in the 70s, um, and it's all set in Helvetica, <laughs> literally <laughs> right next to my television. So, uh, yeah, can't escape it. Um, and from from a from so we talked about a lot about Helvetica, the the kind of design and art piece of it, but it's a business, it's a product. Uh, and that product went through a few owners over the years. Obviously, it was first developed by Haas. It was then acquired by Linotype. It's now owned by a company called um, Monospace uh, Imaging Monotype, in Monotype uh, Imaging Inc. Uh, catchy name, which I'd already uh, forgotten. <laughs> so, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get into into the uh, the nitty gritty of how people make money from it, and um, uh, those guys in particular. So you can already see how, um, who prepped what. So Tom focused on Helvetica, and I was focusing on monotype. Monotype, yes. <laughs> I was thinking of monospacing, the, the, where you have the equal spacing between lettering in a, in a typeface. My bad. Um, yeah, and there is also one other differentiator, because Tom, you said, I'm not going to make this a history lesson, because I will make yes. this a history lesson. <laughs> <laughs> So Helvetica was born as Neue Haas Grotesque in 1957. The company owning Helvetica now, Monotype Imaging Inc., was born in 1887. Crazy. Is it the oldest one that we talked about until now? We did have I an older so. one. It's pretty old. So I, don't, I, I don't envy Helmut the research Miller. that you've had to do based on that timeline, I have to say. <laughs> it's a mess. It's a real mess. But I actually um, yeah, tried to pick out the few major strategic decisions or few major um, things that happened in the company history. And yeah, it is history. 
actually the company made history. So it was founded as Lanston Monotype Machine Company in Philadelphia by Talbert Lanston. And as the name suggests, Lanston, Talbert, he invented the monotype machine. And the monotype machine was a machine for printing. And this machine was truly revolutionary. Just a short reminder, um, information at the time was consumed on paper. So we are in 1887. If you want to consume information, if you want to read something, it is on paper. Meaning that at a certain point in time, it needs to be printed. And to print pages of text before, I wasn't sure if I should share this in the podcast, but it's just so interesting. So let me just try to explain it. And please, Tom, help me out if I explain it not well, because I'm not a native speaker and it was super hard to learn this. So to print a page of text, a person would manually take a single character into a frame until it shows the final page of text. However, these single characters in this frame, this was not used to print, but rather as a template to produce the actual printing surface. So you can imagine this frame as kind of a stamp or a mold, which was then used to cast the actual printing surface. So you would use this mold, um, you would cover it with special liquid metal, which was actually called type metal. Um, And then the result when everything would be hard again, like metal would be um, uh, cold, would be the printing surface. And then you would cover this printing surface with ink, push it on paper, and then you have printed something. And obviously this pushing things on paper has different methodologies, maybe rotation or something. Not going to go into that, but that's how printing worked back then. Which is just sounds like... (laughs) Like horribly horrendous, time-consuming <laughs> way of doing anything. Um, I, I would not have got into typesetting in the, I don't know when this was, the early yeah. 20th century. And now we know also why this weird word of typesetting, like what what is typesetting even? What word is this even? So yeah, it's typesetting because you took single types and set it into a frame. So eventually it would make a page. That's typesetting. So um, that was obviously hugely time-consuming, super hard, and a typical newspaper at the time only had eight to ten pages because of this. So it was just super hard to create these printers or these printing frames. So the first huge improvement to this was the linotype machine. The linotype machine, um, an operator would operate a keyboard. The machine would assemble these single characters instead of somebody by hand assembling the single characters, they were assembled as a line. And this line, again, is used as a mold to cast this line of text, which is then used for printing. Line of text, linotype. Hmm. Okay, so this was huge um, improvement. So somebody who could type something on a keyboard looked completely different than our keyboards right now. Um, And this would create these lines of text. This would be molded. And then you could basically stack these lines of text and then have the final um, page to print. And that was great um, because it was much faster. um, And it was actually the mostly wide used form of printing of newspapers until the 1960s. So 1880-ish until 1960s, this form of printing was... Um, most widely used. 
And then we have the monotype machine. So the problem with the linotype machine was that it always produced one single line, linotypes, which means that if you mistyped something, you had to melt the whole line again and you had to basically produce in line in a new way. Also, it had some drawbacks when it came to the kind of characters that you could use because they were, again, in one line, so they needed to be the same space and so on. Uh, the same size, same space and so on. So this monotype machine was able for the first time to mold single characters which were then again put together by a machine automatically. So you had the linotype machine, which was already much faster, but now you had a machine that was more flexible, more precise, which with a wider range of characters. Um, and yeah, some other improvements, not going to go into that. So this was especially useful for high quality book printing. So newspapers would be printed with this linotype machine, and then um, the higher quality books would be printed with monotype and this whole so, thing sorry gone so linotype was faster is that why they used it for magazines yeah and so the monotype the company did it kind of do both technologies or just the monotype one no that was actually mostly monotype and you can uh, so monotype machine and the reason is so um tom already mentioned that um helvetica was bought by um, monotype so linotype. monotype uh, by Game linotype yeah. exactly so linotype and monotype were the two huge companies producing printers at the time so mm -hmm. you had this monotype machinery company which was focusing on this monotype kind of printing and then you had this linotype again a company with a proprietary technology which had a different technology for printing and they both coexisted because the ones printed newspapers and the other one printed basically more high-quality magazines, books, and so on. Got it. So, early days, company was super successful. So, it was typesetting and printing equipment for high-quality printing, where this monotype technology was useful. And in Britain, now that's an interesting pivot, actually the whole company or the whole uh, the whole um, brand was licensed to the UK and this is where it actually got super successful. In Britain, it was something like a monopoly in the better quality magazine and book typesetting. So it was so successful because Monotype was not only having this technology for typesetting and printing, but it was also successful because it was actually developing most of the one or some of the most iconic typefaces for example times new roman so in collaboration with the times newspaper they developed their own font and that was times new roman and that was then used by this newspaper so now think of something like this you have a printing and if you want this print to look somehow different you need to create your own different your own font and this is exactly what Monotype, but also Linotype, actually did, these two big companies. So, go on. Sorry, Alan. Do we have a time for a short story? Yes, <laughs> always. <laughs> We're only at minute, um, what is it, 40-something? What? 50, 50. 51, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I was telling my wife that we're going to record uh, a podcast about Helvetica, and she shared a story about the Times New Roman. So she told me that when they in their house got the first computer, 
this computer and that was back i don't know i think she had windows 95 or something like this installed in her machine and when she opened microsoft word she saw like times new roman written in there in the font section right and she thought that this is actually a uh, uh, she thought that actually this is a font developed by the guy who came to install the computer because his name was roman <laughs> wow <laughs> you just i've seen marked <laughs> off your wife on the <laughs> podcast yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great story or something you know that's a great so story she obviously didn't know these things yeah um but it's just like yeah where do these names come from yeah, yeah. No, they, they originate from somewhere don't they so um yeah i've made much bigger mistakes than that when it comes to naming conventions for brands and products <laughs> and things but also I can still remember when we got our first computer. And first, it's weird that A, there are different fonts. And secondly, it's weird that you can actually choose them, right? Before, did you ever think about fonts before you actually had a computer and were able to choose a font? No. no. So for me, like this was not even in a consumer or usual person's head, right? You would no. read something. Yes, this would look a little bit different than that. But all of a sudden, you have a user choice which is which font do you want in your word document and yeah. you're like i don't know <laughs> if you're anything <laughs> like anything like me as a child when i first discovered there were other typefaces and fonts to play with i remember just being like a kid in the candy store and like all of my homework would have like 10 different typefaces and um, and word art word art and everything it's like ah um <laughs> Yeah, my taste has slightly improved um, since then. But yeah, that first realization, you know, there's this drop-down list of like 30, 40, 100 different fonts. It's like, yeah. yeah. Hold that thought. We're coming to that later. Um, for now, yeah, this was how things worked. You had a typesetting company. You had the technology which was used for printing. If you wanted to print your, if you wanted to offer to your customers a different typeface, you would have to create a new typeface um, and this is what they did with times in roman um, this is also what they did with eric jill the designer of jill sons so famous designer at the time um, and of course that helped monotypes reputation as this quality um, and design excellence company because they went into like high quality books and they also kept developing new uh, typefaces. Um, they also did some smart decisions in terms of promoting their own business, which was that they ran a magazine themselves. Like it was called the Monotype Recorder. And that was a newspaper that they would publish themselves or a magazine that they would publish themselves, um, showing off printing styles, showing off, um, showing off uh, typefaces and so on. And they also um, operated a typesetter operator training school in London. So mm -hmm. imagine this is a job where you have obviously learned something. This is a manual skill and they ran their own school to train uh, typesetters, basically typing the keyboard and operating these machines. So super successful um, as long as this technology for printing was the one that was the latest. But then, as always, and with every company, there is new technology. And this is when the decline of the company happened. So 1960s, um, there were new types of printing. 
So this hot metal type setting, linotype and monotype, wasn't really state of the art anymore, but there w- it was replaced by phototype setting and lithography. And this was much more suitable for mass, mar- uh, mass market printing, but I'm not going to go in phototype setting and lithography because it would have taken me another day to learn what this even is. <laughs> so the thing that I just know is that, um, yeah, you don't need any form of solid metal anymore. It's much quicker in setting the type. It has a reduced number of operators. Um, you can do more a more diverse range of fonts um, than with the hot metal. And you just don't need to own all the life-size matrices, like molds for every single font, right? Before, everything was one metal for one character and now this was basically printed on photographic paper uh, mm-hmm. and i don't ex- I know at all how lithography uh, works yeah the, the photographic um, techniques and stuff are just crazy but obviously it sped things up um and offered a little bit more creativity but um all of these technologies were a design constraint. I think it's really interesting that you look back at like this, the kind of um, Swiss design period and post-modernist uh, stuff, and how simple it was, how simply typeset things are. Um, obviously, there was a there was an element of aesthetic kind of order there, but also you were really limited in what you could do. Like it wasn't like jumping in Figma and having like hundred layers and you know being able to pull in photos and collage and everything. If you wanted to do, if you wanted to recreate say, some of the DMBA certificates or um, some of the imagery you have on your website um, using the technologies of past, it was almost impossible. So that really drove an aesthetic. Um, and yeah, over time that, you know, the new techniques that you've been talking about, Franz, just opened up a little bit more uh, creativity, made yeah. things a bit faster. But still, compared to what we do now, like just <laughs> blows my mind how slow it would have been. Yeah. Um, so what did Monotype do? It's like a little bit like a, let's say, Kodak story. So they try to come up with their own um, phototype setting machine. It was very legacy-based, based on the technology they, lo- they used for the Monotype machine. So it just didn't work. And they almost went bankrupt. But now in uh, contrast to um, Kodak, another thing happened (laughs) and they luckily did not miss that, which was digitalization. So this photo, um, this phototype setting and lithography was basically a intermediate technology. And then uh, soon after that, personal computers started to come up and they realized that text will not be consumed on paper anymore, but on screens. And luckily they actually, yeah, did miss out this intermediate technology and then actually realized that digitalization is the huge next thing. And this also meant that the scarcest resource had changed, right? Before everything was on paper, meaning that the scarcest resource was you needed a technology to bring information onto paper. Now that the so screen- it was a machine, a literal it, machine, it was the scarcest resource, right? Exactly. And now the scarcest resource 
if you want text on screen is not the technology anymore. And obviously they will also not go into providing the screens because somebody else makes the computers. So the most or the scarcest resource is the font, the typeface itself. And that was a huge realization for the company when they completely abandoned hardware operations and went and really doubled down on owning fonts. And what so they did... Wait, they, sorry, sorry, go, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, where was I? Yeah, what they did was uh, they went shopping. So obviously now, if you realize this, you want to accumulate the um, scarcest resource as soon as possible, as long as nobody else really realizes that the IP is the thing that really matters in future if you want to be in the um, typeface uh, business. So around 1990s, they started shopping. So they bought International Typeface Corporation, um, which was also one of the first foundries. They're still called foundries uh, because that's what they used to do, mold metal um, but this was one of the first founders that fully embraced digital typography and had really established like a reputation for high quality digital typefaces so they acquired this um, actually monotype was acquired by ACFA which gave them again a huge access to the front font library of ACFA and then last big acquisition when it comes to acquiring other fonts only was in 2006 when they acquired their ancient competitor which was Linotype so now these two huge companies not huge companies but two very important companies Linotype and Monotype that basically revolutionized printing more than 100 years ago are now one company Monotype bought Linotype and Linotype, as we said, had already bought Helvetica. And this is, or the company that owned Helvetica. And this is how Helvetica ended up in the font empire of Monotype. So that was their first really important strategic decision, right? So if you want to be successful in the digital age with typefaces with fonts, you need to own fonts because it's super easy to change different fonts. Uh, you can just click and reuse a different one. So most important thing is you have rights to these fonts. And now that you own these fonts, the next strategic focus needs to be or was, and now in retrospect, it's always a need, right? But they also realized that it's about distribution. Like how do you actually sell these fonts? How do you... Um, how do you earn money with this font? So they really focused on distribution. One part of distribution was this huge, this licensing to huge companies. So we already said, um, obviously they there was before even, but they had licensing, licensing with um, CNN, with Microsoft, with Apple. That was all licensing at the time, maybe not monotype, but that's one way of um, selling your font, licensing to a huge corporation. But they also realized that there are smaller entities buying fonts. And this is when they went on the shopping spree for font online shops. So fonts.com, my fonts, font shop. Maybe some of you are using all these uh, shops. They're owned by Monotype. 
Yeah, know a few of those. I think they and they really became mad popular um, when you were finally able to use like custom fonts online, right? Which was only like mid two thousands without it being complete ball ache. You know, just being able to buy a web friendly version of a font and stick it in your CSS and go. Um, that was when we saw that big explosion in those sort of online foundries. That was when, yeah. certainly when I started using them a lot more. I think we need to double click a little bit on the distribution thing here because when you mention it in passing, it sounds so obvious. Of course, like you need a distribution channel, right? For your product, which in this case is typography. But, and you'll probably talk about it, but the reason Monotype is in pretty good position in this market, let's call it typography market, is because it does own such a big part of distribution. And the reason also it owns is because from my perspective is like, there's a lot of foundries and especially today, there is this like, um, I wouldn't just say stigma, but it's also like when you look at these founders of foundries and topography founders, they're basically designers. They're basically artists, people who love designing topography, people who love playing with types and people who at the same time do not like doing business, like thinking about sales, thinking about distribution, thinking about legal, I don't know, like infringements of someone using their font. And Monotype, the reason it's so successful is because it combines these perspectives. So they have like these design assets, but at the same time, they are like uh, a business with sales, with marketing, with legal department. And that's why, because they own such a big distribution part, that's why even to this day, all these smaller foundries are struggling because they, at the end of the day, need to go to Monotype to actually get their font distributed to yeah. the end consumers. That's You're right. That's I didn't huge. mention that, right? So in these font shops, obviously, fonts.com, my fonts, font shop, they're not only selling their own fonts, right? So first, you have your own fonts that you license to big companies, but you can also sell them over your own, I don't know, say your own branded online shop yeah. but if you think of this as a master plan of owning the business of fonts then you realize that there is not only your fonts but also fonts of other font foundries of people who love to design fonts and design great fonts they need to sell it in a way it's really hard to do it for them um, so what you do is you have a marketplace where somebody can sell their fonts and if you think of it it's Pretty much like uh, I don't know Spotify or eBay for or App Store uh, or App Store for uh, for fonts. Yep. Yeah. And that's smart. And they didn't come up with the idea, but they again bought this whole thing all together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They did. And if you've not bought a a, a font or a family of fonts before, <clears throat> yeah, you the, the, there are different models when you go on there. So you go on the Monotype website, um, find Helvetica. Now, for example, if you're a big corporate, there's a like, you know, contact our sales team, you know, they're going to try and give you a volume license. You know, it might be, oh, okay, we want to have this on 10,000 machines. We want to use it for all our identity and um, it's going to be used in all of our advertising. They will come up with a, um, a quote that you couldn't just generate online, which is like, we need to work out this individual thing. There's a bit of bartering, probably there'll be renewal costs each year and you will go through a sales channel um, versus 
you know, me as like an independent designer or a small business um, or a medium-sized business or organization like DMBA, where it's, we, we want to use it on our certificates and um, our printed materials. So we just go in and we buy that individual um, typeface or maybe even just one font. We just want the italic version or we just want the bold version. Mm. And just to give some context for Helvetica, you'd probably need to spend $40 for a single weight. So if you want bold, $40. You want italic, $40. You want the light one, $40. Or you could buy all of the all of the uh, fonts in the family, the whole Helvetica family for like 500 bucks. And by paying that, you can then use it without worrying about copyright infringement or monotype coming off after you with their lawyers to say, naughty, naughty, where did you get this uh, this typeface from? Um, and they're very, they've got tools that they acquired when they acquired, I think, fonts.com um, that allow them to like scan the internet and scan all kinds of digital um, assets to check whether a typeface is being used with a license or not. So cautionary tale, always check your licensing. And if in doubt, buy the typeface. Um, there's some pretty, they got, they can pay for better lawyers than you can probably. So, yeah, sure. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it, we, we talked, I mentioned earlier about IBM, you know, paying a million bucks a year for, yeah. you know, for, for their typeface. So just gives you a bit of a context of what big business this, this can be um, and the different channels that you can go through to buy it depending on the size. Yep size and scale yeah font licensing is indeed the biggest part of the business i think alan will go a little bit deeper into that when he talks about numbers um but monotype as a company they have really diversified so they are doing custom type design and is was it google who actually made a new font together with monotype Alibaba for sure. Not sure about Alibaba Google. For Not sure. sure that Google did, but like you say, Franz, plenty of organizations go to someone like Monotype because they've got the you know yeah. shit hot uh, type typography yeah. designers. So you can do that with Monotype too. Um, they offer branding solutions, so they are a studio basically. Um, and I guess they are not making a lot, a whole lot of money with the studio. But you can compare this activity to the typesetter school. <laughs> in the 1930s um now they have a studio obviously they want to do design they want to be used um in great design so they also want to do great design and this studio i guess is some um is part of this they have tools for designers um like software solutions where you can manage your um manage your fonts um or compare and discover fonts and so on and very interestingly, Monotype still has a business of typesetting. So we discussed that this is kind of a weird word. And typesetting back in the days was you set single characters of type into a um, frame, and this was then casted. Now they are doing digital typesetting because, and I was new to this, I didn't know this. Um, many of listeners will know this. But it's not just that you have hardware like phones and ebooks and cars and TVs, and you can just choose your Times New Roman or Helvetica, and then it works perfectly. Um, there is 
software behind that. There is typesetting behind that. So apart from licensing font, fonts monotype has now a second huge line of business, which is licensing text imaging solutions to consumer service, um, consumer device manufacturers. So if you are, if you have devices, can be an Apple Watch, can be an e-reader, can be a TV, you don't only have to buy a, a typeface, you also have to buy a software solution that uh, helps you display this typeface um, across screen sizes, across devices, across resolutions. Uh, and that's exactly what Monotype also did. So interestingly, full circle. Uh, so typesetting from the very beginning and now typesetting in a way again, um, but just without any machinery anymore. Um, You're also paying for <clears throat> quality with someone um, like Monotype. So you can go and buy a you know Helvetica alternative from a cheaper foundry or even from a, a an individual who kind of maybe is a bit of a hobbyist. But the the kind of attention to detail that might have been given to spacing and the fact that it's going to align right with the um, software in the background that makes sure that things line up properly and that they scale properly. Um, I've bought some really crap fonts in the past and regretted it. So again, you're, you're paying, you're getting that sort of brand halo um, reassurance that if you use something across digital, it's going to scale really well. It's You're not going to have any issues with resolution. You're not going to have yep. any display problems. It will always be really readable. So um, another reason why they're such a giant, you know, you just, you've, such reassurance um, if you're a big yeah. brand. Last chapter of the history um, of the history lesson is um, acquisition. So we already heard that I did not bore you with all of the acquisitions that already happened in the company's history because they were a lot. Like company was split up, company was bought, company was merged, company name disappeared, company name reappeared, and so on. So I didn't go into that. But I think what is interesting is that a lot of the owners already were private equity firms. Then it was floated on a stock market and now it was taken off the stock market again in 2019 and again acquired by a private equity firm, HGGC, for approximately $825 million. So not a huge amount of money, but still super interesting for me that a company with typefaces is a private equity business apparently. So you know what private equity is looking for. Um, margins, growth, um, a good investment. Um, and now I am curious whether this is, <laughs> whether Alan thinks this is a, a good um, um, private equity case or, but yeah. Maybe just a few words on the private equity. So maybe for the design community, this isn't like a well-known term. So just to put it in perspective. So like um, on one side we have, let's say VC companies. So venture capital, so these are like companies with uh, money and they invest in like new startups. And their hope is that one of these startups is gonna be unicorn, bam. Another type of investor is individual investor. So you go on a stock exchange and you buy some stocks. And in this case, you don't control the company, you just get some upside if the price of the company goes up and maybe some dividends. 
And the private equity is basically, just imagine, it's basically a company that has a lot of money coming from different sources, some wealthy individuals, some even institutional investors. So there's like even pension funds in the US that invest in private equity funds or companies. And these companies, their whole business is basically buying companies and flipping them. But the way they buy them is they always want to have a full control of the company. So they want to buy more than X percent. So sometimes it's 51%, sometimes it's less um, to own the company because then they can, and I'm using air quotes, manipulate the company so to increase the value. Because the whole business model of private equity businesses is buy to sell. So you buy a company that either you can grow or let's call this restructure. <laughs> so either grow or, or restructure dissect. or dissect and then sell for more. That's the whole business. And this is important because the way private equity, private equity companies run um, their companies that they have bought um, is, is it depends like, well, it has a lot of effect on the users and the customers. And in this case, designers, you know, we are being affected by this purchase. And when the private equity buys a company, there are two reasons why they buy them. One is they see uh, uh, a very clear path to growth. And this would be in a case with ESOP, for example, like, okay, it's very clear that this company can grow. Or they see a clear path to um restructuring <laughs> so making it more profitable and selling it for more and it wasn't clearly communicated in the acquisition because that's not something that you can really read between the lines but if i look at the numbers of the of the monotype it's pretty clear that this was a pretty stagnating business it really didn't grow too much the only way it grew was by buying foundries so that's why they were just on a shopping spree buying basically every foundry they could buy. Uh, at a certain point, it didn't make sense to buy small foundries anymore because it just didn't add to their revenue top line anymore. But that's the story. So it does sound like more, it does seem more that, you know, private equity in this case would try to restructure the company. But luckily we didn't see any layoffs, uh, big layoffs uh, yet. Um, so yeah. Um, so that's a little bit about the private equity. So let's have a look at, uh, sorry, Franz, did you want to add something to this? No. <laughs> uh, uh, the just, only thought that I had was that this was 2019. Yes. So I'm curious how long, like that's already a long time. Yeah, <clears throat> that's Could another only point. mean that it's a super profitable business. <clears throat> another point is that usually they buy to sell within like three to six years, max 10. So this is now getting close to maturity of private equity funds where they usually sell these things. So, I mean, honestly, we don't have the clear revenue numbers in this case because uh, Monotype Foundry was public until 2018. And then, so the last annual report, full annual report we have is 2017. So we don't know what happened between then and now. So we need to make some assumptions, but also we can just look at 2017 numbers and see what kind of scale was the business at that stage so and this the, the size it was at i think it's the smallest company we have covered so far in these teardowns it was 2000 uh, 240 million dollars in 2017 
and now it's estimated to be somewhere between 250 to three to 300 million dollars and half of that revenue comes from uh selling mostly from licensing funds so that's 55 percent of the revenue and then quite surprisingly at least to me was that another half so 45 percent comes from this software that uh, france was just now talking about which is the basically text imaging solutions for the companies creating hardware mm. so this is for car companies for e-reader companies like amazon kindle and so on um another interesting sorry yeah go ahead <laughs> so, so are we doing a game of bigger or smaller i guess not because you have already stated the revenue yeah we're not so revenue is time. 250 to 300 million yeah i have notes on top of my document for mm -hmm. the revenue of most of the companies that we have done ah uh, you want to reverse the game today <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> okay so 200 to 300 million dollars revenue per year i will tell you now five companies and you will tell me which company is the closest and okay. we've talked about all these companies. So is the closest Lululemon, Sonos, Warby Parker, Herman Miller, or Aesop? I'm going to go with Warby Parker. Can you go through the list again? Um, so the list is Lululemon, Sonos, Warby Parker, Herman Miller, Aesop. Yeah. I'm going to go with, uh, so what was the second one? Sonos. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go with Sonos. Sonos? Yeah. Okay. So, both wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Is no. it Aesop? No, it's actually, I think it's Warby Parker. So Aesop's revenue, we don't really know the, yeah. the, uh, the, um, the latest numbers. But for Warby Parker, we have a revenue for 2022, which is a little bit less than uh, 600 million. Oh, wow. Yeah. So That's Monotype definitely. as a company is half the size of Warby Parker. Aesop's mm. revenue in 2012 was 530-ish. So mm. even there, Aesop was almost more than double than Monotype. And the biggest company that we have um, discussed until now is Lululemon, Sonos, Warby Parker, Herman Miller, or Aesop. Lululemon. I think, yeah, it's Lulu still, isn't 8 it? Billion. Yeah, 8.1 billion. Yeah. So just to get a little bit of a sense mm. for the span that we're talking here, 8.1 billion, um, 2022, I think, Lululemon revenue. Um, versus 250 to 300 million um, monotype, which is the smallest one um, until now, isn't it? So that tells you something about the size of this industry. So we have the biggest or either the biggest or the second biggest player. So we didn't talk about competition today, but probably the biggest uh, competitor of monotype is Adobe uh, with their fonts. Um, so if, let's say, first the second biggest player has 250 million revenue, that tells you just that this is, you know, it's not a huge market. You know, maybe it's like a billion in total. 
probably less than that even. Don't you think that's crazy when um, you consider the impact that the product has and how essential it is? Um, I'm not saying that that should correlate with revenue, um, but it, it feels like a relative cottage industry to, compared to <laughs> all the other brands we've talked about, and its its reach and impact is is so enormous. Um, I think for a lot of people, it's a late, it's a it's kind of calling and labour of love to get in something like typography. And I can, you, yeah. you, you're maybe not going to make your millions um, as a typographer, but you might absolutely love what you do. It's very <laughs> unlikely, but this way, yeah. Sorry for the interrupt, challenge. And no worries. That was a nice uh, side discussion. Um, so I was talking about the revenue, right? Another interesting part about the revenue is, I mean, one thing we didn't really touch upon today is like the fact that we have different alphabets and mm. Monotype is mostly selling to North America and Europe. That's their biggest market combined more than 60%, 70%. And, but Japan is 25%. Wow. And that's an interesting point. Like with the typography, like you can develop for different alphabets you know different locations and it doesn't scale as nicely typography as some other products because you do need to make a lot of adjustments mm. to fit into i don't know arabic uh alphabet and so on and it so might that's... not be worth the investment for a lot of organizations sadly right it costs a lot of money to typeset in in these uh these other languages and um mm people shouldn't underestimate the, the time and money that goes into creating a type a good quality typeface and yeah you may not recoup that um in that in the territory yeah so when i when i watched this documentary tom i had a feeling like wow this takes them a long time to develop a typography because i was under the impression you know like this goes a little bit faster and you just move on to the next project and it's almost like music yes you do dive into it but you create the next song and you go forward but it does seem like it's a yeah labor of love and it takes it felt months you mm. know to create some of these things yeah it, it took um it took monotype i think four years to develop the variable font version of helvetica and they were starting from a base of having helvetica and yeah. that's a team, like and a big team of people who credited mm. with that. Um, it's not just that because it's not just the design aspect of making sure, you know, you're adjusting shapes so that they work well together and everything. It's all the technology behind it now for digital scaling mm. and resolution and um, all that stuff. It's, um, it's a big undertaking. Mm. Do you want to guess Helvetica's revenue? Do you have a natural number? I don't have an actual number. No, I have my guess. own estimate, and I'm going to walk you through my thought process. But uh, just curious as to what your estimate is. Mm, yearly revenue. Yeah. Mm, I'd imagine it's gone down a lot over the years, certainly from a few of the big brands developing their copycats. Um, 30 million. 30, okay. My calculation comes out at 50 million. Five zero. Yeah. Okay. Can you walk us through your calculation? So you told us 250 million per year. Yeah. Then you told us 50%, roughly 50% from licensing. Yes. And I assumed that Helvetica is the air 
So I assumed forty percent wow. of the okay. licensing revenue comes from Helvetica, which is fifty. Yeah. Okay. Good guess. Good rationale. But so the only educated. So I tried to do an educated guess, and this means I tried to find a data point and kind of use this data point to extrapolate. And the most, let's call it, uh, trustworthy data point I could find is that Monotype's top 10 licenses together make 30% of their total revenue. So top their top licenses. And I'm assuming, and probably safe assumption, Helvetica is among those. And if we go with all of these having just 3% for, let's say Helvetica is 4% of that part, or like basically 4% of the total revenue of the company, that would only put it at 10 million a year. But if we go with, okay, it's maybe 8% of the total revenue, then it's 20 million. If we go with 10%, then it's 25 million. So it depends on like what part Helvetica plays in those top 10 licenses, which make up, up to 30% of the revenue. But it does seem that the safe assumption is somewhere around 10 to 20 million uh, per year. Revenue. It's probably gone down considerably the last few years, I'd, I reckon. Well, the company has made a lot of uh, progress on trying to reduce their reliance on their top sellers. Mm. So they've mm. been very, very um, uh, outspoken and proud about that in their annual reports that they always like, where it, oh, we went from 35% to 30%, now to 25% dependence on the top 10 licenses. So they're really proud of that. For context, they sell 40,000 different typefaces right that's a lot not all of them are theirs right so i think that but yeah through their marketplace yeah, yeah. yeah i don't know how mm. they won't own forty thousand. but if you go on the website like you can very much yeah yeah choice anxiety it gets real <laughs> on a different aspect i love these guessing games so i love these how i just made it up but how you made something up because it's like everything is out of thing here so please if somebody in our listener uh, base, know somebody from Monotype who can give us the actual number of how much revenue does Helvetica make. I would be super interested because I just want to know how close we can get yeah. by these um, like quick guessing games or prototyping yeah. with numbers. That we can know who owes whom beer. Is it me that I'm closer or France? <laughs> well, I did you know, if on a serious note, we would love people to jump into the Slack. It's a bit more private um, that we talked about um, before. And if you if you do have the inside line on some of these private companies that we've talked about or ones that we might be featuring, which we may start talking about more openly through there, um, please hook us up. Um, we'd love to to have a, a better grasp on what some of these figures are. Yeah, so we obviously try to do our best in the research, but if the company's private, it's not in the company's interest to tell you all of these numbers. So in this case, luckily the company was public until 2018, so we do have some numbers, and company being public is usually the best way to have mm. good, reliable numbers. But the best part about the numbers is still coming, which is profitability. You know how I love talking about gross margins, right? Mm. Okay, so last time with... Uh, ESOP, we had a company with unbelievable gross margin. It was above 
Just to put this in context, this means that if you make something for $1, you're selling it for 10. In this case, our gross margin is 83%, which is, again, amazing. It's really, really, really good. Even some software companies have lower gross margin. To give an example, Netflix has a gross margin of 40%. Usually companies that have very high gross margin have also amazing net margin. But for some reason, that's not the case with Monotype. So despite having 83% gross margin, they only have 5% net margin. To explain this, so this means that for every 100 bucks that we make as a company, it actually costs us 17 bucks to make this product. So this means that we keep 83 bucks for every 100 bucks we make. But then somehow in the process of marketing this product and research and development for new products, we only running end up company. with... Sorry? Running, running the, company, the company, exactly. We make only five at the end, $5 for every 100 we bring in. And that's not something you would be proud of, especially this delta between the gross mm. margin and net margin. Just did, to give another example, where? Sorry, go on. Just blind. to just to finish this mm. analogy, it's like Netflix had forty percent of gross margin. Do you know what their net margin is? Eighteen. Right. Much nicer ratios. <laughs> yeah. Have you come and encountered many organizations that have such a big disparity between their net and gross? I had a hard time finding one, but I did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Salesforce. Um, and both, so Monotype and Salesforce have the same problem, but first Salesforce numbers, gross margin 75%, net margin 2%. That is, that is lean. <laughs> lean <laughs> margin is not, yeah. Lean in the wrong way. It's not the business designer's dreams. No, no, uh, that's crazy. I think probably Costco in a retail world are probably running at those kind of levels as well. Actually, it's funny you mentioned this. So another example I have is Walmart. So Walmart has a 25% gross margin. This means that they mark up the where you see, so the stuff you see in the store um, by um, 25%. And, but their net margin is still better than monotypes. It's um, healthier 5%. Wow. So for monotype, what's the problem? I'm so curious. Yes. So your detective, Alan, put his financial glasses on and okay. the thing i could could from the end reports figure out is the following um the problem seems to be their costs <laughs> <laughs> but which ones wow nice work colombo <laughs> <laughs> they're so, just too big <sighs> no, no no let me guess no it's a type of product that just needs a lot of sales yeah so the biggest expenditure with 40% is so-called marketing and sales costs. Um, for example, so for for um, for Monotype, it's 40%. For Netflix, it's 8%. Why? Because with Netflix, you basically only have marketing expenses, but you don't have sales. And here you have very manual sales process. Another thing your detective did was I went and looked at their current openings. So who are who is monotype hiring for and a lot of these roles are sales roles and that maybe also explains why i don't know small foundries are struggling because they're just focusing on the art but they're not focusing on the sales part which is very 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 important in this 
this type of uh, business, especially if you're selling to B2B clients. You know, you need to hold their hand in the process. And uh, Salesforce has the similar issue. You know, they're selling a B2B software that just a lot of clients need a lot of hand-holding there. So their um, marketing and sales uh, cost is also 43%. The second really huge bucket of their costs is uh, 20%, and that goes to something called general and admin. And I don't come across companies having 20% general and admin costs usually. And my hunch for why this is 20% in their case is because a cost that falls under general and admin costs is legal expenses. Uh, and as we, do, there. as we said before, you as a foundry, you need to keep track of who is using your fonts in the right way and who is infringing the copyright. Mm. And again, I looked at their hiring, so their um, vacancies, and they're hiring for a lot of um, legal personnel. Whose job and I give is you exactly another this? one. You know uh, what also or? needs legal? Uh, contract? M&As, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, yes, good one. So if you are growing by buying companies, that's going to cost you money. It's obviously going to bring you revenue because you just add these companies into your uh, balance sheet. But at the same time, buying a company is not the... It's not an easy job, right? So I was wondering where the cap, if there is also capital cost from hiring, uh, but definitely there could be a lot of, um, yeah, overhead that or cost that goes into this admin in general um, that yeah. comes from these uh, acquisition processes. And these mm -hmm. acquisition processes, they're not like, I made it look a little bit like it was started in the 90s and then it kind of stopped, but that's not true, right? So these all these newer acquisitions they go up until 2010 2014 font shop was bought in 2014 my fonts 2010 um yeah so that didn't stop basically <laughs> they swift media acquisition 2015 brandmark.io 2019 all oliven new media 2015 yeah so Almost every they year, there's one. They were just shopping yes. every year, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the name of the game here was like, as you said, Franz, the most important insight this whole company is based on is being one of the first to realize that typography is the asset, it's not a machine anymore. And once they realized that, it was like, let's just get our hands on the best typographies and let's build a machine machine being a business mm. in this case, where we know how to service our clients, which is corporate. And we provide them with fonts, uh, sorry, typographies and fonts and um, with the software to use those things. Yeah, That's basically the business. It's being the first in realizing that there is a new asset in town and you need to own that asset and building a whole machine around it. Unfortunately, that asset takes a lot to sell um even uh, their r&d is pretty high it's 15 percent i wasn't able to really point pinpoint what this is it could be i mean it's probably both software and development of new topography because in a way new topography is research and development for new products for foundry um but that wasn't super clear and just a comparison our r&d for monotype 15 percent netflix five percent of their business, of their costs. 
Mm. And so, yeah. you said that 50% of the revenue or 45% of the revenue comes from software solutions right. for the font, for the type uh, faces to be displayed in uh, consumer devices. So I guess that is a technology business much more than a font business. Mm. Well, the 50-50 split, you mean like the R&D or what? No, the 50-50 split of revenue between licensing uh, yeah. revenue and the software revenue OEM software revenue, like the yeah. ones that they sell to car manufacturers, TVs, uh, e-readers, whatever yeah. devices. Yeah. The font rendering yeah. uh, technology. Yeah. So my cool. advice to all the independent founders out there would be like, get yourself some sales. <laughs> get, or get find. yourself sold. <laughs> um, no, I mean, if you want to be independent, I think... Yeah. There's, I mean, you do need to get serious about the business side of things and um, just have a legal, like maybe just one legal person or maybe like even like a group of founders together hire a salesperson or a legal team to take care of these things. Maybe maybe do the DMBA. Defoundry. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. So I'm always super excited when I find these stories in numbers. Uh, and this one was especially juicy, I think. Really interesting. Yeah, especially diving into, you know, at first glance, <clears throat> it would seem really obvious how they make their money, but actually there's quite a diverse number of ways that they've, um, that their revenue is uh, put together. One that I'd underestimated how much is the the, the rendering IP technology. Um, mm, me too. Which is so critical. Um, I was so disappointed actually, because now I don't see, uh, I mean, Please, that's another quest, please. If so, we said if somebody knows the revenue of Helvetica, please call us or please join our Slack and tell us. Second thing is if you work or know somebody who works for the private equity company who bought Monotype, <laughs> I would be super interested in this business case. Like mm. what ha what's happening? Like how does this play out? What do they because know that we don't? Because it doesn't eighty five percent gross, awesome. Five percent net private equity what are you doing there but maybe that's the reason they bought it like they looked at numbers and they were like we can definitely slash the sales yeah. or whatever else and we can yeah drive costs operationalize down. restructure the business um to so make it bring the more profitable. net closer to the gross yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah because even like so the when the company sold i think it was sold around 830 million mark and they had 240 million revenue. So let's say roughly three and a half X of the revenue is what they sold for. And if you can improve profitability by, like if you can increase it by two, like let's say from 5% to 10%, you're increasing the value of the company by a lot. You know, these multiples add up and you can, I think we will be surprised by how much the company will be sold for in the end. Because in a way, this is now a subscription business and those are valued as a really nice multiples, let's say 10x of the profit. So if they are able now to get profit, let's say to 10%, um, and if they get 10x, this is already 2 billion exit. So they doubled or even tripled their investment here. Which leads so, us on to, sorry, Franz, you're probably going to yeah. say the same as me. Threats, say it. Threats and opportunities <laughs> and are we buying or selling? Um, <laughs> I think I think there's some 
in my eyes, at least, there's some there's some clear threats here. The opportunities are less obvious. But um, Franz, did you want to go first? Hmm. I mean, threats are obvious in a way that it's not easy. So obviously, it's easy to create your own Helvetica. Um, and I think the font itself is also not the key that it used to be. So it might have the better margin, but I think it's not the differentiator anymore. Um, on the other hand, their business of the software um, renderings or rendering softwares that actually makes your font run on the de devices, that might be even more valuable as an asset, but definitely not as profitable. So I think the business itself, yeah, not a great opportunity there. Um, yeah, people create their own fonts. Open source fonts are getting more and more, um, getting more and more um, widespread. Also, if you can't, if you don't have a, if you have a great font and you don't really have an, um, let's say an outlook on earning money with it, then rather make it open source and just have fun by everybody using it. So I think that's going to be the road for fonts there. Um, and big companies will create their own uh, font families or um, typefaces. So yeah, can't think of opportunities, honestly, um, <laughs> except for like operational, like within the company. Mm. Uh, and we already mentioned that, right? So if you have a net, mar a gross margin of 85%, then there is room for improvement. So you can do something um, to make your business more profitable. And I rather see the opportunity within the company rather than without uh, or outside of the company. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Alan, thoughts? Mm. So one big threat is voice AI. Ah, AI, UI. <laughs> so just people using voice instead of uh, graphic design, which relies on uh, text. Um, that didn't quite go as we thought it would. Like in the mid 2010s, 2015, everyone was talking about voice control. And if that took off, that would have a huge effect on monotype. Um, but that's at the same time is an opportunity. Like what if they go into voice fonts? You know, the sounds of people and developing those things. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they have, this is their core capability, but just like um, uh, fun thought that I had. One thing they mentioned in their annual report from 2018, I found really interesting, which is, I'm quoting here, if channels of distribution for content and the devices increase and diversify, uh, we may not be successful in adapting uh, or maintaining these new business models. So what they're saying is, we have a good understanding of the current devices for consuming content, but if those were to diversify, we're not sure if we could actually develop software to properly display fonts. Uh, an example of that would be AR, VR, and so on, which is funny they put in risk because, because that's probably their biggest opportunity is new devices. <laughs> it's just new way of consuming content. So I hope this is also their opportunity. Um, frankly, that's their biggest opportunity. You know, just figuring out how fonts need to live in the, especially AR. AR is going to be completely different. Like, you know, how do you overlay info over the real world in a way that it's eligible, that it's clear, 
um, that it's that it communicates quickly, that doesn't obstruct from the thing you actually try to see, which is maybe the real world at this moment. Um, so that's, that's a good my one. two, yeah, two big risks and ops from my side. Yeah, just to piggyback on that opportunity, I think for someone like um, Monotype who have so much brain power in the technology of font space and have been a bit of a leader when it comes to developing variable fonts where they adapt to screen size, um, all kinds of other sensors like, you know, a, a typeface changing based on light levels and all that kind of stuff. Like we've seen that with Helvetica now, they've made a really interesting variable adaptive font. That's an incredible amount of work and brain power and expertise required to do that. And as we move into things like AR and VR, um, they are so well-placed to just clean up, to have typefaces that, you know, classic typefaces, but that, that work really well in these new modalities. Um, mm. So hopefully they can jump on that. Um, I think the biggest threat is one that we've talked about already several times, which is... Um, big organizations that probably well i don't know maybe naively i thought they made up a big part of their licensing previously um just continuing to develop their own versions of whatever the most fashionable font is so recently have been things like inter um you know but it's, it might be helvetica again and that is becoming increasingly easy and that leads me on to another threat um which is ai there are already pretty decent font generator AIs where you can prompt away uh, it to adjust bits of kerning and, you know, um, make it more like, a, you know, generate me a grotesque font or a humanist font that's like X and now adjust it so that it's 20% different in this variable and this variable and, you know, export some pretty decent, usable, unique fonts um, that maybe are close enough um, or even completely original without needing all that expertise. Mm. So I think that's going to, that's going to be, I mean, it's a threat across the land when it comes to the creative industries. Um, but yeah, definitely one that I'm sure Monotype are well aware of, but they could harness that as well, right? For their own product development. Um, as far as coming up with initial ideas, which at the moment for me is where, um, AI is particularly like useful. Give me that big bit of clay that I can then mould. And I feel like from idea generation, that might be a really useful tool. Um, and then the continuing uh, sort of growth of Google fonts, it's pretty much the first place I go to now to try and find a new typeface. There's a lot of dog shit fonts on there, but there's a lot of really good stuff still. Um, and, you know, we talk talking about the revenue that, monotype mate that's dropping the ocean for someone like google and uh, you know yeah they keep throwing more and more free typefaces and they're, they're completely free and most of them yep. are, work really well and um yeah i can i can see that continuing a to be a point. threat um and maybe not just google so tom are you buying holding or selling again this is not for investment i mean obviously it's not investment advice because you cannot buy a monotype stock but entertainment purposes only <laughs> so tom buying selling holding. if I, I i would not be buying and um i i would i would maybe be holding if i had some out of some sentimentality because i really admire typeface design as an art form um but it's not not gonna make 
not going to make my millions off that. So yeah, <laughs> I would be I would be not buying or selling. <laughs> I'd hope for the private equity uh, to do their magic and make me some money with the stuff that I'm holding. But apart from this, not a big buyer. <laughs> Alan, same here. Yeah, I'm also like. I can see reasons to buy from the private equity perspective. Um, so if I were in their shoes, you can see potential to improve profitability and so on. At the same time, if I were in a public market and so these numbers, I wouldn't be buying. Um, maybe not even holding, probably selling. But yeah, mm. so it's not even, it's not getting even close to the ESOP and the sentiment we had. No, not for at it. all. I should say that ESOP was outstanding. So yeah, that was the man. only buy we had on. Oh, that was crazy. I should, side note: I said, "Oh, I'm sentimental about typefaces. Sentimentality is not a good reason to buy any stock. So just just <laughs> just need to put that out there. Um, <laughs> that's a big mistake that we talked about before. Um, but uh, yeah, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have been all in when web fonts were really exploding. And I'm sure if we went in our time machine and looked back, it might be some more interesting numbers there. But um, yeah, not 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 going to be diving into to this one. Alrighty, I think we have our verdicts. So the last thing to do is, again, invite you to join us on our Slack to chat. So you can find the invite at d.mba slash Slack. But if you want to dive deeper into the world of business, you can also join us at our free seven-day um, mini MBA course. So it's an email course where over the course of seven days, you receive seven emails and you get to learn business concepts. We throw many of them during these episodes, uh, but if you want them explained deeply and how they fit into Designer's Toolkit, head over to d.mba slash mini MBA. So d.mba slash mini MBA. Again, you can sign up there. I think that's everything. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Franz. See you in the next one. See you. Thank you. Looking forward. Bye. Bye-bye.